Have you ever considered the amount of faith that it takes to make it through a single day? You had faith this morning that your car was going to get you here. You also had faith at the same moment that the other drivers on the road were going to follow the same rules of the road that you do. And let's be honest, in Houston, that takes a lot of faith. You're going to have faith this afternoon as you leave, and you're going to go somewhere to eat, that whoever prepared the meal, whether that's mom or, or grandma, whether that's at a restaurant, that they didn't poison the food that they set before you. Some of you hadn't thought about that one yet, right? You have faith that they didn't put poison in the food. You even have faith right now in this moment that the chair you're sitting in is going to be enough to hold you for the next four hours as we talk, right? I'm glad y'all that wasn't all nervous laughter. So what makes our faith in God, what makes our faith in Jesus different? George Mueller once said, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. This morning we're continuing our series on the parables of Jesus that's found in Luke. We're going to be in Luke 17. You can start making your way there now. And while you're turning, I want to say a special welcome to any guests that are with us today. Uh, thank you so much for trusting us with just a little bit of your time. I also want to say good morning to those who are worshiping with us online. It's already uh, been mentioned that this is Thanksgiving week. Uh, I've met some family members of some of our members this morning, and I know we've got many that are away as well. Um, how do you know that you have faith? What if you go your whole life and someone that you've been praying for healing, you never see them healed? What if you go your whole life and, and that mountain in your life, you never get to see it cast into the sea? Does that mean that you don't have faith or maybe you don't have enough faith? Does that mean that, that God's not listening to you? Friends, I want you to know this morning that our faith isn't about seeing God just do the unimaginable in our life, the impossible as we say. Our faith is an everyday kind of faith. That's what we're going to see this morning. Would you look on with me? Luke 17, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. And he said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The most talked about verse in this passage is verse 6. It says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and I believe it's this verse that really sets the tone for this whole passage and the parable that is to follow. But it gives us the first reality of what it looks like to live in an everyday kind of faith. And that first reality is this. The object of our faith 
matters more than the size of our faith. The object of your faith is going to determine how trustworthy your faith actually is. You see, it doesn't matter how much faith you have in the Houston Texans this season. It does not matter at all because they are terrible and they're not going to win the Super Bowl. The size of your faith, the amount of your belief, how much faith you can conjure up is actually irrelevant if that object isn't trustworthy. That's why the object of your faith is vitally important. Simply put, biblical faith, faith in God is believing that God is who he says he is and that he can do what he promises to do. Faith works best when it's based on what God promises. And faith doesn't work at all when it's based on anything else. The object of your faith is what matters. That's where the power comes from. So is there a mulberry tree in your life? Or maybe a mountain from where you're sitting today that you want to see it cast into the sea? You see, you can put your faith in your hard work. You can put your faith in your finances. You can put your faith in in some combination of of spirituality and religion and, and all these other things. But at the end of the day, where you place your faith, the object you place your faith in is going to be what matters the most. Having faith the size of a mustard seed in the right thing, having just this much faith, makes anything possible. And it's not even because of you. It's because where you put your faith. A few chapters earlier in Luke 7, there's a story of a centurion who had great faith. If you don't remember the story, he's a man who had a highly regarded servant who is sick, and it says, on his deathbed. And so the centurion, he sends word to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I need your help. I want you to come and heal this man because I need him, and I love him. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 7, verse 6. It says, he, he sends word to Jesus, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even come to consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. And I love Jesus' response here. In verse 9, Jesus heard this, was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he says, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good the centurion's faith was huge but because it was in the right thing it had nothing to do with the condition of his heart had nothing to do with the words that he said it had everything to do with who he put his faith in he didn't receive a miracle because of his determination he received a miracle because he came to the one person that was trustworthy to deliver what he promised to do on his faith faith is not blind hope Faith is belief on what you know, and it's the foundation to carry you through the unknown. 
There is evidence that we can see, that we can feel, that we can experience that gives us confidence to accept the things that we may not be able to see. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. It says faith is the reality of what is hoped for. That word reality, it literally means to stand under. It's a foundation. Faith is something that gives support. Faith should be the foundation of our lives, the reality that gives strength and stability to our lives. It's the substance of what is hoped for. If you've ever sold a car, you know that that sale is not final until what? You sign the title and you hand it to the person, right? When you go in to sell your car, you do not carry your car in with you. You don't have to have the meeting sitting in the front seat of the car. No, you, you, you talk about the car. You show them the car. But the sale is not final until that title is handed over. And when you hand over the title, you hand over the promise of the car that is to come. Faith is the title. Faith is the deed. It is the promise of something greater that is to come. It's the reality, the thing that is hoped for. It doesn't matter how much you want or believe that something is going to come through. If there is no evidence in the past and there's no promise for the future, that's not faith. That's superstition. In fact, that's the essence of our salvation. Saving faith is believing that God has the power to save you. You can believe that because Jesus died and was raised for you. There is evidence that he has the power and that he has the desire to do for you and to do for me what we cannot do for ourselves. Your faith is expressing your belief because you're trusting in who Jesus was, what he did, and what he promises to do. You're trusting him to forgive you, to empower you, to change you. That is a saving faith. That's putting your faith in the right thing, having faith in the right object. It matters way more than how much of that faith you have. As we continue reading, we see our next reality. Keep going with me. Verse 7, Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not say, Prepare something for me to eat? Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what he was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. If we want to live an everyday kind of faith, the second reality that we must be aware of is that faithful obedience it matters more than the emotions of our faith. It's important to note right here, don't miss this. Jesus is not saying that we are merely servants of God, that we are somehow less than sons or daughters. Friends, you are sons and daughters of God. If you have put your faith and your trust in him, you are heirs to the kingdom. We can talk about the blessed gift that that is. And, and a parable like this, misunderstood, can shipwreck your faith. 
So don't, don't miss that. He is not saying, oh, you're just a servant. You work the field, you serve me, and that's all you're good for. But the point he is making here is that we are fulfilled when we are doing what we were created to do. That is when we serve and obey him. When we remember that he is the king and I am not. You see, our emotions can be great liars. Do our emotions matter? Absolutely they do. Can we have times when we feel really close to the Lord and then other times when we feel very far away from him? Absolutely. But our feelings shouldn't be the determining factor in how we live, in how we act, in how we relate with God. I think it's interesting how Jesus sets up this parable. He, he paints a picture of a servant who is working in the field, and then he comes in, and, and this, the master is just expected to serve him. Jesus turns to the people that he's teaching, and he basically says, all right, can you imagine if this situation happened? And everybody sitting there would have looked at each other and be like, no. There's no way a servant is going to come in from the field and the master is going to do anything he can do to serve that servant. He goes on to explain the standard way that a servant would operate at the time. And this particular guy that he's using as an example, he was a jack of all trades. So he kept the flock. He took care of the crops. He was coming in uh, to feed the family, to take care of the meals. The job of the servant is to serve the master, not to be served by the master. Would the servant be able to eat and drink? Yes, after his duty was done, after he fulfilled his job. Jesus even says the, the master doesn't even thank the servant. He says, why would you thank him? He's doing exactly what he was designed to do. You see, in this parable, the identity of the servant is his servanthood. That's what he was created to do. That's why he is on this earth. And, and again, Jesus is not making this uh, something that applies directly to your life, saying that you are only a servant. He's saying, look at the purpose of the servant. It's to fulfill his duty. His identity is in his service to the master. He is serving out of obedience. He is serving out of duty. You know, I would do absolutely anything for Christy. I love her more than any person on this earth. She is my best friend, and it is honestly a privilege to serve her. You know, I really like making her tea in the morning. Just gets her day started off right. I don't know why she doesn't drink coffee, but if y'all could pray for her, I would rather make her coffee. But I do love making her tea. I love keeping her car clean. I love spending $458 for the one gluten and dairy-free macaroon that her favorite bakery makes. And I'm lying about one of those things that I love. One of the main jobs that a husband has is to serve his wife. And men, we serve our wives because we love them. But Christy and I, we have a, a saying in our marriage. 
Love is unconditional. Like is optional. So do I get a pass from serving my beautiful wife on the days that I don't really like her? On the days when she just really frustrates me, do I get a pass on those days? Absolutely not. I absolutely do not get a pass on those days. You see, part of who I am, part of who I was created to be is Christie's husband. And one of the chief jobs, one of the major duties, one of the, the greatest honors is to serve her. So you may be thinking, how in the world does this relate to faith? Friends, we cannot allow how close we feel to God in a moment to determine our obedience to what he's called us to do. When we become a child of God, when we put our faith and our trust in him, we enter into a love relationship with the God of the universe. And in doing so, we are committing all of who we are to him, to be in submission to him We lay down our selfishness, we lay down our pride, and we give it all to his leadership. We commit by faith in what he has done and by faith in what he promises to do to a life of worship and service to the King of Kings. And our life should be marked by obedience, an everyday kind of faith that sustains us. Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You see, trusting God to do great things in our lives, it begins by trusting God to do the ordinary things in our lives as we obey him, as we walk with him. More often than not, I believe that God works in the ordinary more than he does in the extraordinary. As we walk faithfully in the small things, God, he speaks to us, he blesses us, he leads us into greater and greater things. You see, if we only live for the mountaintops, we're always going to feel like we're stuck in the valley. William Carey is considered by most to be the father of modern missions. He was a man who served in India in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. But long before he ever stepped foot in India, he had a heart to reach East Asian people. God had given him this vision that he was to to go and reach these people. But not yet. So William Carey found himself in Moulton, England, pastoring a small church and working as a shoemaker just to feed his family. So while he's pastoring, while he's making shoes, he put a map on the wall and he built a globe out of excess shoe leather that represented the people that God had called him to reach with the gospel. And so for years, as he shepherded just a few people, He would see that map and that globe, and he would pray. He would pray that God would reach him. He would pray that God would use him. He would pray that God would use somebody else, but that the gospel would reach East Asia, and men and women would cry out to the Lord. You see, he went on to lead thousands of people to Christ. 
but he was faithful and he was obedient in the ordinary, in the everyday, year after year after year as he preached to a few people, as he made some shoes, and as he prayed. See, I've found that God will almost always teach us privately before he uses us publicly. And one of the questions that I have to wrestle with in my own heart is, is okay, if I believe that, and I know that I need to be faithful here, and I feel that God is calling me to do something great, what is the difference in procrastination and waiting on God? Procrastination is when we know what we've been called into, when we know what that next step is, and we're unwilling to take the step. We delay that for whatever reason. But the flip side is, when we wait on God, we may not know what that next step is. And so we're faithful in what he's called us to here as we pray about where he's taking us there. The final reality that we're going to see this morning, it takes us back to the beginning of our passage. The third reality, if we want to walk in an everyday kind of faith is that we must have a growing faith that affirms who we are in Christ. Understanding this parable, it's about living our purpose, our duty. It's about living in obedience. It prepares us to better grasp these first few verses that we're going to look at that can honestly be a little bit difficult to wrestle with. Luke 17, go back to verse 1. He said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Context is important here. This passage is part of a larger teaching that Jesus has been given, uh, giving. It goes back to uh, the beginning of chapter 15. And over these chapters, Jesus has illustrated over and over the importance of forgiveness, the importance of reconciliation, of of leading well, of following wholly after God. And right here, he challenges the disciples to be careful how they live, and I believe to be very careful about the kinds of things that they're teaching. And in verses 1 and 2, he essentially reminds them that everyone is going to sin, that sin is always bad, but it's so much worse when our lifestyle, when our actions, when our sin or our teaching causes someone else to stumble in sin. He says, especially these little ones. And I believe that is referring partially to children, but I think little ones here is also referring to young believers those who are babies in their faith, those who may not have the foundation uh, that, that the disciples have, many of those people that you have in your life that are just starting to be interested in the things of God. In this context, I believe that that would be uh, the sinners uh, that we've read about Jesus uh, fraternizing with, some of the public figures. And we know that the Pharisees have been publicly criticizing Jesus, and this is probably a little shot at what they've done. We must be careful about how we live and how we teach so as not to cause someone to stumble, 
So serious is this sin in the eyes of of Jesus as he's teaching. He says, it would be better for you to be cast alive into the sea with a stone around your neck, never to be seen again, than it would be for you to cause someone else to stumble. And then on the heels of those strong statements, he continues in verse three. He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. To summarize, Jesus tells the disciples to remember, you're not perfect. You're going to sin, but you need to live and you need to lead carefully so that you don't cause someone else to stumble. But more than that, you need to be a person of forgiveness when someone wrongs you. It doesn't matter how big that sin is. It doesn't matter how often they sin against you. You need to be a person of forgiveness because you are forgiven and you need to forgive. That is your position. And I love how the disciples respond to this. And you're thinking like, we're talking about faith. What in the world are you talking about? Look at what the disciples said in verse five. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Said increase our faith. They are asking Jesus to give them the ability to live the way that he has called them to live that they wouldn't do anything to make somebody else stumble, that they would be people who are known by the forgiveness that they offer, that Jesus would create in them a faith that drives them to be the person, the man or the woman that they were created to be. The disciples are saying they need more faith to live, to act, and to be what they've been called. They need more faith to trust that God is in control and that they were created to live and love in this way. Do you see that Jesus challenges them? He challenges their response. And I love that the disciples, they didn't say, okay, Jesus, we need more love so that we can go out and we can love the unlovable. Or Jesus, we need more grace because we know we can't get where you want us to go, so would you just be gracious with us so that we can make it there? That's not what they ask for. They say, no, Jesus, we need more faith. They need more faith that they can trust who they are in Christ. They're beginning to understand, like the servant in the example that we just looked at, that they were created to love, they were created to lead, they were created to forgive and do so many other things for the kingdom. And it all starts with a faith that affirms who we are in Jesus. You see, friends, we don't forgive because somebody deserves our forgiveness. We forgive because we are forgiven and we are created to be people of forgiveness. That's why the disciples ask for increased faith. They need an increased trust, an increased dependency on Jesus to be the person they were created to be. Friends, that's where I want to be. I want to be so confident in who I am in Christ that the audacious things that I want God to call me into, 
the crazy out there things for the kingdom of God that God calls me into would be an automatic yes. But the flip side of that is I want to be so in love with Jesus that I'm going to walk faithfully with him in the everyday, that I'm going to be the husband that he created me to be. I'm going to be the friend that he created me. I'm going to be the evangelist that he created me to be because I am a child of the king that was created for his glory to serve him and do my duty as a child of God. To live that way is to walk by faith. And it's not always an extravagant faith. It's not always this big audacious faith. It's not always an emotional faith. But I want to walk in an everyday affirming faith. So what does your faith look like? Where does your faith show up in your life? Are you waiting on God to move a mountain before you give him all of who you are, before your yes is on the table? Friends, we're called to an everyday kind of faith, a faith that seeks to know more of who God is and his desires for our life. A growing faith that reminds us daily of the man or the woman that you were created to be. A faith that leads us to obedience in the ordinary as we pray for the extraordinary. When Jesus is the object of your faith, every day is an opportunity to know and serve him more as he does what only he can do in your life. Every person here this morning just like the disciples, we all need our faith to increase. And for some, it may be the realization that you've been putting your faith in the wrong object. Maybe it's the finances. Maybe it's the bank account. Maybe it's your hard work. Maybe it's a litany of other things. Others, maybe you've been waiting on a miracle You've been waiting on that that feeling of being so close to God before you give Him that part of your heart that you've been keeping away from Him. Or maybe there are some here today who have just been trying to get by without knowing fully the grace and the love of Jesus. And today is the day when you say, I want to give Him everything. I don't know where your faith needs to increase. But what I do know is this. If the men who walked the streets with Jesus, who listened firsthand to his teaching, who watched miracle after miracle after miracle happen, ask their teacher to increase their faith so that they could be the men that he created them to be, I think that's a great starting point for all of us. So as we respond this morning, some of our team is gonna be available down front and it would be an honor for us to to talk with you, to answer questions that you have or, or just to pray with you about needs in your life. However the Lord is leading you to respond today, I hope you will. Will you pray with me? Father God, we collectively ask you this morning, God, would you increase our faith? 
God, in a room this size, our needs range from very simple to incredibly complex. But God, we bring them all to you because we know, God, that you are trustworthy. Because we've seen you do it before and you promised to do it again. And so, God, we ask that that you would do what only you can do that you would bring healing where healing is needed. You would bring comfort where comfort is needed. God, you would bring hope where hope is needed. And along the way, you would remind us, God, that we were created to serve you, to love you, to worship you, and to let that bleed out of our lives into the lives of others. And so God, would you increase our faith, our trust, our dependency on you to be the men and the women that you created us to be. God, I thank you that you love us enough to meet us where we're at, to give us a hope, and to do the unimaginable in our lives. God, would you have your way in our hearts right now? It's in the name of Jesus I pray.